You're listening to What the History, a podcast where two nerds talk about some awesome, crazy, random stuff you probably don't remember learning about, but you're going to now. Hey, nerds. Welcome back to What the History. Uh, Today, Sarah and I are going to be talking about someone who was mostly unfamiliar to both of us. I personally didn't really know anything about her. Sarah knew way more than I did just in terms of like who she was. But today's episode, we're going to be talking about Ida B. Wells, who was an African-American journalist, teacher, activist, uh, and she is just a powerhouse of a woman that we're really super excited to talk to you about today. Yes. And we do want to start off with a handful of disclaimers. The first being that we are aware we are two white women. And so we really did our best yes. doing this research to to take care with some of our language and the way we talk about things. But if we mess up at any point, we are very open to you letting us know that. Like I said, we tried our best, but we know that, again, we're two white girls. So we definitely want to hear about that. Um, and then there's a couple things we wanted to talk about in terms of content warnings and language disclaimers there. So the first being most of Ida B. Wells' work was about lynchings and lynchings go hand in hand with a lot of alleged rape cases. So just by the nature of this episode, we're going to be talking about both those topics at length. So if that is something that makes you uncomfortable or you don't want to hear about, we totally understand that. Um, So those are your content warnings. You've got racism, sexism, all of that stuff in there. Yep. Um, and then a couple notes on language. I personally am going to be reading a handful of quotes from the pieces Ida B. Wells is known for. And at the time, what was common practice was to use the word Negro in reference to Black Americans. And I don't feel comfortable changing her wording. So I will at no point be using that word in my own paraphrasing or my own discussions. But sometimes when I'm quoting her, that word will come up. And I'm, I'm totally aware that that is not a word I should or would say. And I believe the same will be true with the idea of colored women coming up in the name of some organizations. Yes, that's something that we'll talk about in in a couple different ways, but it comes up. And also just on that note too, Sarah and I, you know, we both discussed this and there's a lot that we're still learning about the language to use, especially when we're talking about things like slavery. Again, we are two white women who have benefited from a system of privilege literally our entire lives. So especially as a teacher, it's important for me to understand what language we're using when we describe slavery. So if we say something wrong, if we say something incorrectly, this is our opportunity to learn. And we appreciate like any kind of knowledge that people are willing to offer for this topic. Yep, absolutely. Okay, so it's definitely not going to be as light of an episode as our past ones have been. Yes. But It's not as fun um, as Chernobyl. No, <laughs> you know, it's funny. I was thinking that earlier. I was like, we'll probably have to let everybody know that it's not going to be as fun as Chernobyl. And then I laughed <laughs> because I was like, that's really fucked up. Yep. <laughs> this is Chernobyl's not fun. So no. <laughs> that just goes to show the type of person that I am. Same. Um, and I'm glad that you laughed at that because I was like, I hope Sarah agrees with me. I totally get you. It's the same. It's yeah. like the Titanic was fun. Yeah, right. Exactly. I think all of our topics have been somewhat heavy hitting. Yeah. So they're like a little bit more on the like darker side. Okay. So we're going to get started with Ida B. Wells. So yes. the B stands for Belle, which I thought was super badass because Belle is also my favorite Disney princess, but that yes. is a major side note. Um, so Ida B. Wells was known primarily as a journalist, activist, researcher, and a teacher. Shout out to my teachers who frequently spoke out against sexism, racism, and violence 
throughout pretty much her entire life. She was born on July 16th, 1862 into slavery in Holly Springs, Mississippi. Ida was the first and the oldest daughter of James Wells and Elizabeth or Lizzie Warrington. So interesting about her family was her parents like heritage. So her father, James, was actually the son of a white man and Peggy Wells. So from what research I gathered, there's not a lot of information about James. Peggy Wells was, I believe, a slave that was owned by his father. And then his father, I think, bought James out of slavery and then trained him into like being a carpenter and then he hired him out as like a carpenter but also was still a slave so he was part white but he was obviously owned by his father which I I was trying to figure out how that kind of worked Mm -hmm. so he had he was mixed race which again kind of put him in a different position from some of the enslaved people that he was interacting with and so in some of the accounts that I saw that Ida talks about her father struggled with where he sort of was in society which from what I understand was a fairly consistent idea for situations like that. Ida's mother Lizzie was one of 10 children and Lizzie was born in a plantation in Virginia and she was actually separated from the rest of her family and she tried to find them throughout the rest of her life and she tried to reunite with them after the Civil War but was unfortunately not successful. So Ida was the oldest of what would be eight children and after six months of actually, yeah, so six months after Ida was born, she was freed with her family by the Emancipation Proclamation in 1863. So she lived the first six months as an enslaved person. But after that post-Civil War, her family was extremely active in the Republican Party and that period of Reconstruction. So I think it's also important to point out that the Republican Party has since sort of changed quite significantly. Yes, this is where people like to be like, but Lincoln freed the slaves and the Democrats liked having slaves. Right. That's because they did a whole uh, flipperoo situation. Exactly. And it's funny because it's been such a long time since I've looked at American history that I was like, wait, what the hell? And then I was like, oh, wait, never mind. No, no, this is like not today's Republicans. Yeah, it's just it's basically (laughs) backwards. Exactly. Exactly. So he uh, so James and Lizzie and Ida and their family were a big part of the Freedmen's Aid Society. And in that organization, they actually help start some of the oldest black colleges and universities in the United States, one of the first one being Shaw University. So Shaw University eventually becomes um, renamed as Rust College, but Ida attends Shaw University until she's 16. And she really focuses a lot of her time on education because her parents really instill that value in her. But when she's 16, there's two kind of conflicting situations that happen. The first is she's either expelled because of a dispute with the university president, which I found kind of weird because like I would imagine that as the daughter of someone who helped found the university. Right. So I don't know if that was the, the case. Um, the other situation was or the other case was that she had received word that her um, family had been struck by yellow fever. And so she oh. just had to drop out. Yeah. So that actually does happen. But the mm-hmm. timeline for that was a little wonky. I couldn't really figure that out. So Ida is visiting her grandmother uh, for a few weeks in 1878. And she receives word that yellow fever has struck her home and has actually killed both of her parents and her infant brother. So she's now orphaned at 16. And she has six other siblings because wow. I'm like trying to do the math here. So she has right. six younger siblings that she is basically somewhat responsible for. So this is kind of one of the 
first places where Ida is like a crazy awesome badass. Her siblings were basically expected to be split up by the rest of her family and friends. They didn't want them to stay together because they thought it was just too much for six kids to try to survive. Mm -hmm. So they thought like one parent, you know, or one family member, whoever would take some of the kids and split them up. But Ida refused. She did not want her family split up. So what she did is she actually lied about her age. She pretended to be 18 years old and she landed a job as a teacher so that she could pay for all of them to stay together because nice. teaching didn't pay super well um, and it still doesn't pay super well <laughs> but at least the job as a teacher could help her stay keep the family together right it paid something um, exactly and it was better than I think I don't remember what she had been working at before I couldn't find too much on her life prior to like 16 which mm -hmm. is why it was hard to figure out like why she was removed from Shaw University or if she just left on her own yeah so yeah so she lies about her age and what's really cool is that her paternal grandmother Peggy Wells and other family and friends actually band together and help her raise her youngest siblings while Ida is also working so there's this whole like the community coming together mm -hmm. and working together in order to like help raise these kids who were obviously orphaned and also to like allow Ida the chance to have a career which I thought That's was cool. like yeah I thought it was yeah. pretty cool and I think that it kind of speaks a lot of this idea of like a community banding together and like helping each other out. So in 1882, when Ida's 20, her grandmother Peggy passes away and her sister Eugenia also passes away. I couldn't find how Eugenia Eugenia died. Okay. But um, she decides that it's time that she takes up one of her aunt's offers to move herself and her brothers to live with her aunt in Memphis, Tennessee. So she and her brothers pack up, move to Memphis, and her brothers get jobs as apprentices to carpenters, very similar to their father. Mm -hmm. And she gets a job as a teacher in Woodstock, Tennessee, in the Shelby County school system. So she starts teaching elementary school. And in the summers, she actually continues her education at two different universities. One is Fisk University. The other is Lemoyne Owen College, both of which are historically black colleges and universities. So it's up until the age of like 22 that things for Ida are pretty simple I would say I don't know if simple is the right word because it's an incredibly difficult life right but it's more so like her life is a little bit less focused about activism and more just focused on survival and her family and really her own kind of career path right but she hits this major turning point on a train from Memphis to Nashville when she's 22 years old and this is going to be a place where it's kind of almost like an epiphany moment for her because of what she's going to experience okay. so on May 4th 1884 Ida had bought a first class passenger ticket for a train ride like I said from Memphis to Nashville and she was told when she got on the train that she had to get off of that car and sit in the car for African Americans so she was riding on the Chesapeake and Ohio Railroad and the conductor who was in charge told her that she needed to give up her seat despite having paid for it so she worked her ass off she saved her money she earned herself a first class passenger ticket that she bought for herself and then she was told that she needed to get up and move to the section that was for African Americans. No. So according to the Civil Rights Act of 1875, this wasn't allowed and you actually couldn't racially discriminate in public accommodations. But like a year or two, I think before this incident, it had been overturned by the Supreme Court and now you could legally discriminate against people because of their color and they were well within their right to basically tell Ida to get off of that seat and move to the back which is all kinds of fucked up yep so and it's something that's going to be a continuous thing for i mean this is also long. i was gonna say this is 
similar to the Rosa Parks story. Yes. Mm -hmm. Which is a long time later. Yes, exactly. So if you think about how we're talking about this in 1884 and Rosa Parks is the 60s. Yeah. I mean, it's so many... Yeah, seriously. So Wells still refuses. She's basically like, no, fuck this. I paid for this ticket. I am I have every like right to be here. Yeah. And the conductor and two men picked her up and dragged her off of the train. And supposedly she bit one of the men, which I read that <laughs> and I was like, fuck yeah, Ida, that's Good. awesome. But she also wrote about the experience. And this is also where we start to see her career kind of shift from not just being a teacher, but also an activist and also a journalist. So she writes this article about her experience in a black church weekly newsletter that's called the living way and she sues the railroad company so (laughs) she like does not stand for it yeah so originally ida had hired an african-american attorney but supposedly he was threatened by the railroad company or he was paid off by them to drop the case so ida was like well fuck this so she hires a white attorney who actually wins for the case and for me i was kind of like fuck yeah girl like make those white men work for you to get you the fucking money that you earned you know what i mean yeah i was like that's so cool so she actually wins the case on december 24th 1884 merry christmas uh, to her and she was awarded 500 dollars, which is about the same as like I think it's like $13,355 today I think that's yeah that's what I wrote so of course because that's what uh white men want to do the railroad company appealed to the Tennessee Supreme Court and they reversed the ruling in 1887 and Wells was actually forced to give all of the money that she'd earned back as well as pay for all of the court costs yep is fucked up um especially because like whatever to even get into like legality is like yeah i don't want to say a waste of time but like it's it's like basically a waste of time yeah so meanwhile yeah wells continues to teach elementary school she's in a segregated district of memphis and she is very critical of the underfunded and racially segregated schools and learning conditions that her students are faced in and i just want to stop for two seconds and say this still fucking happens yep this it's still an issue in our public school system and as a teacher who's been in the school district or in the school system for seven years i can tell you that education has been cracked for a very long time and people are now understanding the depth of those cracks and how far down the foundation they go because of what is happening in our country right now with the pandemic um moving to virtual teaching and understanding just how unequal our school systems actually are is like being put into the glaring spotlight and the fact that wells was fighting for this shit like in the 1890s is again still mind-boggling that we still have not figured this out over a hundred fucking years later but i digress and i will step down from my soapbox now um <laughs> everyone's no, like Fuck this i'm turning it off no like, you're correct. we're done <laughs> Um, okay, so meanwhile, she's teaching elementary school, which is a whole other type of fucking challenge. I could not. <laughs> I could not. I teach high school, and that's hard enough. I can't imagine, like, the little, like, boogers and screaming high-pitched sounds of small children running around. <laughs> so if you do that, bless you. She also begins to increase her involvement in journalism by holding an editorial position for the Evening Star in Washington, D.C., and she starts writing weekly articles for The Living Way under the pen name Iola, where she vehemently 
vehemently attacks the Jim Crow laws that are now in place. So I kind of went on like a little rabbit hole tangent with her pen name, Iola, Mm -hmm. because there were a couple different things that I saw that could potentially have been why she picked this name. Um, So the first one was it was the name of a steamboat in the Puget Sound. So I don't think she picked her name (laughs) off of a steamboat. Right. (laughs) I was was like, that's probably not where she got that from. But the other one actually came from, I, I think personally, a novel that was written by Frances E. Harper, who was one of the first published uh, Black women writers in the okay. United States. She wrote this book called Iola Leroy or Shadows Uplifted. So that's like the whole title. Um, but I think it just kind of goes by Iola Leroy. Mm-hmm. So Iola Leroy is about a young woman whose father was an enslaver. And this enslaver had fallen in love with one of his slaves. So he, I guess, sees the era of his ways. He frees her. He marries her. And they have a family together. He sounds great. Yeah. So what a bench. Yeah. <laughs> so what happens with... The father is, I, I want to say he dies and I don't I, really I want to say that too. Yeah. <laughs> so he dies. And so I, again, I'm trying to like figure out like what the fuck is happening in this story, but yeah. so he, he dies for the third fucking time. And technically his wife is now no longer allowed to be free. So she is sold back into slavery Okay, and then their children are being so they have three kids together all three of them are and i don't know the right way to say this it's they all pass as white okay is there is there another way to say that i think that's i think passing is white as far as okay. I know. Is yeah, I feel like that's all I've... It. Okay, because that's what I keep seeing too. And I kind of Googled it and I didn't really get a lot of answers. Yeah. So all three of the children, including this woman, Iola Leroy, pass as white. So what's interesting is Iola is not really aware of her heritage. And so she actually is giving speeches and presentations on preserving slavery when she gets this notice that she needs to return home to the south for something she returns home to the south they then capture her and enslave her oh yeah and that's like the story um yeah i don't really know how it concludes but what's i guess unique about this is first off it's what a lot of critics today say it's like the first black vision of black women's role in reshaping post-civil war America, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. So they say that like Frances E. Harper as a black woman writer was very much looking at like, what is the role of the black woman in post-Civil War America. The book also talks a lot about topics of white superiority, women's roles in society, etc. So much so that there's this quote that I pulled that I just thought was so good and i went like oh yeah but i was like angry about it too so apparently in chapter 17 of the book iola leroy Mm -hmm. iola is teaching black children when this like gentleman asks to address the class and they put gentleman in quotes because i'm assuming this guy's an asshole yeah so he talks about the quote achievements of the white race and then asks well how did they do it and so iola goes all right children tell them and so the kids go they've got the money chorus the children but how did they get it? Quote, they took it from us, chimed the youngsters. And I was like, yes. Fuck, yes, yes, yes. So that was kind of my like little rabbit hole with where Iola might have been kind of taken from as she's yeah. using that as her pen name. And then in 1889, she becomes the editor and co-owner of the Free Speech and Headlight with J.L. Fleming. And two years later in 1891, she gets fired from her teaching job because of her radical disapproval of the conditions of black schools. So she's devastated, 
quote unquote devastated but undaunted as I think her daughter describes in the auto slash biography of her life. Yes. Um, and at this point, Ida is a middle-class citizen of Memphis, which is a huge accomplishment for um, a woman, let alone a black woman at this time. So in 1892, this is kind of the second place where we see another life-changing experience that turns her focus into what's going to be one of the things she's most known about, which is her anti-lynching campaign. So this is the lynching at the curve in Memphis. So really quick, I think it's important to define lynching for those of us who are not fully aware of what it is. Yeah. Because even I was like, oh, I thought it was this. So lynching is when you have someone, typically a black man or woman, who is accused of a crime. They're jailed for this crime. And then they are killed before a trial can be like done to determine guilt or innocence right does that sound okay so yeah it's like extrajudicial killings i think is part of it like yes yes it's not a death penalty handed down by the court it's other people who just decide that this person should die for what they may or may not have done correct exactly and the the form of death i'm not even gonna call it the form of murder yes can be anything like i grew up and i only saw the i don't know how to say this like stereotypical pictures or interpretations of lynching where you know black men were hanged yes but they could also have been shot or beaten to death or any numerous ways of murdering which i actually wasn't fully aware of so i learned something in that it wasn't just like lynching quote unquote with being hanged right so that's the definition of it so the incident that i'm talking about took place in a in a south memphis neighborhood that was called the curve so thomas moss was the owner of what was called the people's grocery he was in this cooperative venture with 11 other african-americans in a neighborhood that had a lot of rising racial tensions happening in it so moss competed with a white-owned grocery store that was owned by a man named william barnett Ida was really good friends with Thomas Moss and she was actually the godmother to his first child. So what's going to happen to him and his store and his employees is going to be the big marker for how this is going to change the course of her life. So on March 2nd, a young black boy named Armour Harris was playing with a young white boy named Cornelius Hurst. So what the fuck? By naming your kid Cornelius, I was just but whatever. Saying, Cornelius, you didn't have to specify he was white, but okay. Yeah, no, I know. And I actually, the first person I thought of was Cornelius Fudge from fucking Harry Potter. That's I funny. Like, I that think, guy was a dickwad too. That's true. I think of it's not quite Cornelius, but um, President Snow from the Hunger Games because it's like Coriolanus. It sounds the same. Oh yes. Oh wait, his name wasn't Cornelius. No, but I read it as Cornelius every time because Coriolanus isn't a word. Holy shit! I had no idea that his name wasn't Cornelius. Exactly. <laughs> Oh my god. I literally just I just did the same thing yesterday with like switching like letters and numbers around. Like yesterday Eric and I went to I don't know where we were. It was like Marshalls or something and we saw this really cute like dog clock that mm-hmm. I thought was 14.99 and it was 41.99. Oh no. And I was like what the fuck? Like I I do that all the time with like random words. So I mean, it happens. Cornelius. Yeah, I think it's just like, I don't know. I wanted to see what I wanted to see because I wanted the dog clock. Well, it's just Cornelius is a word we know and Coriolanus really isn't unless you're like a Shakespeare. Yeah. Like. Is that a Shakespearean name? I think it. he has a play, I believe. Okay. Um, Like one of his histories that no one cares about is called Coriolanus. Um, <laughs> which I think is based on an actual like Roman per- like leader or something. That's not a word we really use. So we're just like Cornelius. Yeah. 
Oh my god. Okay. Which is also not a word I use often, but Right. Like again, the only time I've ever seen Cornelius was fucking Cornelius Fudge. Exactly. So. Okay, so Armour Harris and Cornelius Hurst, I almost said fudge, were playing (laughs) marbles outside of people's grocery. It was like a normal day in March. The two boys were just playing marbles and they started to argue about the game. And then they started to physically fight because fucking duh. Right. First off, I'm going to step up on my soapbox for a second. They're just fucking kids. So they're just going to fight it out and figure out who fucking wins and move on. Second, it turned physical because boys are not allowed to feel emotions, especially in 1892. Correct. So instead of like actually talking through their problems, they started to punch each other, which in any other circumstance would be completely fucking fine. But yeah. this was not going to be the case. So Harris starts to win the fight and Hearst's father, Cornelius's father, shows up and he is not thrilled seeing a little black boy beating up his little white boy. So he intervenes. He basically pushes his son to the side and he starts to beat Harris. Okay. And and he's a grown ass white man beating this little boy. So the people's grocery employees are seeing what's happening. So William Stewart and Calvin McDowell rush out and they're like, yo, what the fuck? And they go to stop and help Harris because he's getting beaten so harshly that it's it's become so much more than just a fight about marbles. Right. And this action turns this very very tense situation in the neighborhood into like a racially charged mob scene so it starts to get very very chaotic and the tensions between white and black start to really show themselves in this very small incident so the next day barnett who's the owner of the other store so i don't know why the fuck he's even involved in this because he wasn't involved in the first place but whatever so he returns to people's grocery with a police officer with a deputy and he's like we're looking for Stuart." and mcdowell is working and mcdowell's like well he's not here and barnett's like well he should fucking be here and he says something along the lines of quote blacks are thieves quote and he hits mcdowell with the pistol that he's carrying Hmm. mcdowell responds by wrestling the gun away and he fires a shot at barnett but he misses mcdowell gets arrested and then he's later released so two days later on march 5th six white men with a sheriff's deputy show up to people's grocery ready to fight and the employees in people's grocery respond by opening fire at the oncoming group and ends up harming the deputy and a civilian So at this point, we now have literally hundreds of white men being deputized and told by authorities that it was their job to put down what was being described as, quote, an armed black rebellion in newspapers and anything that was like reporting on this. This is like the the dialogue that they were putting out there. So as a result of this, McDowell Stewart and Thomas Moss, who is the owner of the store and he's therefore considered a conspirator, are all arrested, jailed and are put into the Memphis prison pending trial so you can see where this is going so four days after that at 2 30 a.m on march 9th 75 men wearing masks show up to the jail they take the three men from their cells they drag them to a chesapeake and ohio rail yard one mile away and shoot all three of them moss's last words were reported by newspapers as being quote tell my people to go west there is no justice here unquote which when I read that, I got like chills. Yeah. Because it actually is going to be the catalyst for how Ida is going to respond. Mm-hmm. Because Ida responds to the event by encouraging all Black Americans in the Memphis area to leave immediately. This also opens up her investigative journalism into lynching. And so that's kind of where I'm going to like pause because you're going to talk a lot about like what her specific um, pieces were. But this is where we start to see 
which I the reason why too I thought it was interesting was the Chesapeake and Ohio rail yard was the same rail company where she was thrown off of. Oh. And I thought there was something like really, I mean, there probably weren't a lot of rail yards, let's be honest, but <laughs> I saw something really interesting and poetic and fascinating in the same thing being mm-hmm. involved in two extremely life-changing events for Ida. Yeah. Yeah. It's very like so, full circle. It, yes, exactly. Exactly. Okay. So I'm going to talk about two of Ida B. Wells's like most known pieces. So the first is called Southern Horrors. It's published in 1892. Uh, It's basically an an editorial about the idea of lynching, particularly the idea of lynching being justified because black men are raping white women. This is a really common accusation that is used to justify this. Mm -hmm. And so it is the first documented analysis of post-Civil War lynching in the U.S. So she's really the first one kind of out here with something this in depth. It's published in response to an incident that happens in May of 1892. Mm-hmm. And what happens is a group of citizens break into a jail in Little Rock, Arkansas. And I will say break in is in quotes because Ida questions it because there's somewhat of a belief that they might not have to break in. The white guards might be like, yeah, do whatever you want. Mm-hmm. Um, but they lynch eight black men. So three of those men had killed white men. And she says that factually not that they were accused um so i didn't look into the case specifically but she does say they had killed white men whatever that might mean and five of them had been accused of raping white women so they had not yet had any sort of trial um or had it proven all of them were hung and then after they had died by hanging their bodies were basically riddled with bullets which was a common happening during these lynchings it's disgusting Yeah. And so her central thesis here is not only is that awful, but that black men basically never raped white women. Mm. And she is saying basically never. That part might be questionable. I'm sure there are some cases and she does say that in later writings. But this is basically saying black men never raped white women and that obviously these people had gone too far in seeking justice. After she publishes that initial editorial, her and the other owners of the free speech basically have to flee town. Um, Their office is destroyed. There's mobs outside. Mm -hmm. They've lost their business and she exiles to her home. This is not the first time that's happened. There have been instances in earlier years where other writers questioned why if black men raping white women was such a pandemic, right? Mm -hmm. Why it had been unrecorded previously. Why there weren't cases of of black enslaved males raping white women and why it wasn't historically common yeah one of the things i was reading about her too said that she specifically commented in one of her exposés or the expose that gets her place completely destroyed she talked about one in tunica mississippi Mm -hmm. where a father admitted that he wanted a a young black man to be lynched because he had a relationship with his a consenting relationship with this white man's daughter like the daughter wanted to romantically pursue this relationship And that's really common. And she actually in Southern Horrors tells, I mean, there's probably 10 specific well-researched stories about this. I pulled one because it has a a powerful quote. Mm -hmm. And so one of the stories she tells is a woman named Mrs. J.S. Underwood. And so she claims that a black man named William Offutt entered her home and raped her while her husband was away. Mm. He says, look, 
our relationship was illegal, both by the fact of it being interracial and because both of them were married. Mm-hmm. So, so he says it wasn't right what we did, but it was not rape. It was a consensual relationship. She met him like at the post office, invited him over to help with something in her house and propositioned him is his story. Mm, yeah. He gets put in jail for 15 years. And later, once he's in jail, she begins to feel badly and tells her husband she lied. So she basically admits, he didn't rape me. I willingly had sex with him. And when asked why she did this, so she says, quote, I had several reasons for telling you. One was that the neighbor saw the fellows here. Another was I afraid I was afraid I had contracted a loathsome disease. And still another was that I feared I might give birth to a Negro baby. I hope to save my reputation by telling you a deliberate lie, unquote. So she pretty nicely sums up, they saw a black man here and I couldn't admit I had invited him. Right. Some sort of belief that she would contract a disease or get pregnant and it would then be known she had willingly had sex with a black man. Yeah. In her husband's defense, he was horrified by what she had done, got a lawyer, got William Offett released from prison and filed for divorce. Wow. Holy shit. I did not think that story was going to go that way. Right. In his defense, he's like, no, I hate it. Thank you. Yeah. So like two points for him. Um, Like I said, she tells a large number of similar stories. They don't all end that way, but they're basically Mm -hmm. women who say they were raped to not admit they had an affair. And Ida writes a bit about the reason this works so well is that people find it hard to believe that a white woman could like a black man. So Mm. they basically say it's impossible for her to actively like him. So even if it was quote unquote consensual, it was by force and she was coerced into it somehow. Wow. So there's just this belief it would never go that way. So it's always going to be a situation of rape. She also does point out some cases of white men who rape white women and are in jail, but aren't targeted as part of the lynching. So in the same jail where those eight men were taken and lynched, there was a man in there for raping like an eight-year-old white girl. Jesus fucking Christ. Obviously also despicable, but they didn't bother taking him. Right. So basically Ida is like calling out the fact that it doesn't have anything to fucking do with raping women. It's the fact that it's black men. Exactly. And I have a good quote about that at the end of this piece too. Oh, okay, cool. Um, so she goes on, she spends a bit of time in Southern Horrors talking about the racist just legislative history in the South and how it's been designed to disenfranchise Black people and to keep white people in power. Mm-hmm. And she then starts calling out specific white newspapers. So she's saying yes. there's a specific headline called like more rapes, more lynchings. And that newspaper was in an area where they hadn't even really had incidences of black men being accused of raping white women. Mm. But they're still publishing these articles and they say point blank, like black people are barbaric and there's no hope for change. It's like, what is in this article? Yeah. So then I have a quote. I've written mic drop in front of a couple quotes here. (laughs) <laughs> and so this goes back to the idea of why would this not have been recorded before if it was truly an issue? Right. And so she says, quote, the crime of rape is always horrible, but the Southern man to the Southern man, there is nothing which so fills the soul with horror, loathing and fury as the outraging of a white woman by a Negro. It is a race question in the ugliest, vilest, most dangerous aspect. The Negro as a political factor can be controlled but neither laws nor lynchings can subdue his lusts. 
Sooner or later, it will force a crisis. We do not know in what form it will come. Wow. So then she talks a little bit about worrying that the Southern attitude has spread to the North and citing instances in like New York and I believe Pennsylvania where Mm. something similar happened, even though she says it's way worse in the South. She straight up says, if you're a Southerner and you're neutral in this or you think it doesn't matter and don't do anything, then you're complicit in it. And you might Mm -hmm. as well just be part of the lynchings. And she says... The South at this point still relies on two things, money from the North and the labor of Black people. Mm -hmm. And so she encourages them using that as a threat, that if they pull their labor out, the Southern economy crumbles. And so she advocates for Black empowerment and self-government and that they have to act on their own to right these wrongs. And they can do so by threatening them with with labor or moving and different things like that that would harm their economy. And so that's kind of her call to action in Southern horrors is do something about it. Yeah. Um, There is a nice little note at the beginning of this that Frederick Douglass sent her. And I actually found there was one of these for every writing I read is him sending her a note after everyone basically saying how thankful he is for her writing that and how great it is. And I thought that yeah, was cool. I saw in a lot of my research that he was a huge part of not just supporting her, like in telling other people about her, but mm-hmm. he actually funded a lot of her endeavors as well. Yeah. And he was writing basically like fangirl letters. Like, yes, this is so great. <laughs> I love you. Yeah. Yeah. Which is awesome. Yeah. Like, fuck, that's like, that is like the highest form of fucking civil rights flattery. Right. To get a letter from, like, Frederick Douglass like that. Oh, yeah. So then in 1895, she publishes something called The Red Record. And the subtitle is Tabulated Statistics and Alleged Causes of Lynchings in the United States. So this is a little bit more of a research paper. It has a lot of lists of records and numbers. And she points out at the beginning that these are records kept by white men. So it's not that they're hiding it or these are anecdotal based on what Black people are telling her. These are based on the records of white men. Mm -hmm. And so she says, quote, The purpose of the pages which follow shall be to give the record which has been made, not by colored men, but that which is the result of compilations made by white men of reports sent over the civilized world by white men in the South. Out of their mouths shall the murders be condemned, unquote. So she basically goes through and says there's three main excuses that they give for why lynching is justifiable. The first is the idea of stamping out race riots, that there's constantly this bubbling need for essentially revenge in the Black community, and... That okay. they're protecting themselves from that. This so is this just, is why this is what white men argued. This is why lynchings happen. Yes, yeah. There's basically okay, three it. excuses for it. So the first got one it. is okay. they have to stamp out race riots, and that's despite the fact that anytime there are riots, no white people ever die. Mm-hmm. It's a, um, it's always black people being lynched and black people dying in these scenarios, and that there was no actual like uprising that ever materialized. So it's sort of this hypothetical. Well, if we didn't do this, this would happen. Right. But it never happens. And they're like, that's because we took care of it. And she's like, no, it's not. Um, (laughs) The second excuse is just a straight up fear of Black people having power in government. So the idea that they would be allowed to vote dominating the white government is just very explicitly given as an excuse. And it took me a minute to get to this one because I was like, that's not even an excuse. That's just racist. Um, But at the time, it was seen as an excuse of we have to protect power in government. And they openly admitted it. And as opposed to like today, where it's like fucking 
voter fraud let's defund yeah. the fucking postal service exactly bullshit. they were just okay. straight up like no white people have to stay in charge okay yeah and did they my question is i don't know if you found this did they like tell her this so i think she was getting it mostly from like pamphlets and newspapers she cited okay. other writings often i don't know that she interviewed anybody who told her that to her face okay um but she was often quoting like white owned media okay got it yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's what investigative journalism is. It's not just interviewing yeah. people, but it's like looking at all of these different resources and going from there. Yeah. yeah. Um, the third excuse is the issue of rape. And she points out that they define rape, not like we would define it today, where there's like forced sexual activity. Mm-hmm. They define it as any alliance between a black man and a white woman. And again, That's basically saying she would never do that. So if she has some sort of activity with a black man, it was forced because she would never do that. So any kind of like any type of physical activity. Yes. Okay. Like I'm thinking even like like a friendship. That's what it sounds like because she says any alliance, even like non-sexual alliances. Okay. Got it. Got it. Okay. So she then gives a lot of records. Um, So she lists every lynching on record in 1892. Wow. So there's 241 people were lynched that year. Oh, my God. 160 of them were black. Um, Of the others, she couldn't confirm on all of them, but 160 she knew were black. And Mm. four of them were women, which I thought was interesting because we usually associate lynchings with black men. Yeah. But there is some number of women in that group wow um she then goes on to tell stories about different basically categories of why people are lynched so for example she says the lynching of innocent men so this can be people not only that are truly innocent and you know went through a trial and were acquitted which is common they'll be acquitted and released from prison and the white mob will decide no we're still going to punish them and lynch them okay But there's also cases where people are lynched for family members' crimes. So just in relation, like their stepfather did something and so they get lynched. Um, Or as a scapegoat. So as some sort of cover-up where they know a white person did it or who did it. And they lynch a black man so that people feel there was justice. Okay. So there's three that she kind of identifies? That's under the innocent men category. Okay, okay, that's just that category. And she has like stories to go with most of these and all sorts of incidences i'm just i just kind of high leveled it yeah yeah absolutely i mean literally this could be like a fucking entire podcast oh yeah 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 the next and this is again a case of um this is not the word i would use today but the word she uses is the lynching of imbeciles Mm. um which is basically people with mental illness she's saying so she tells a story of a man who there was a, a slight like scuffle but he then suffered a mental break and he clearly needed mental health attention right but he was lynched for erratic behavior um and so again she calls this the lynching of imbeciles that is not the word we would use today right but her point is people that need mental health attention or some sort of rehabilitation but like think about how that shit still happens oh yeah like I'll, think about pretty how... much everything she says still happens it's oh 100 cool. but even that like i'm just thinking of this specifically like how many times do we hear these awful fucking reports of people who have mental or emotional illnesses or disturbances or or mm-hmm. anything um academic what is the word i'm looking for um oh my god i'm blanking i'll have to figure <laughs> this out um it's like anyone who has like like, like a learning disability or yeah. anything like that like 
people who like struggle don't get the same attention in a way that's like getting them help that they need and it's it's automatically violent or punishment or something like that right yeah yep and so then the last category she gives here is lynched for anything or nothing so she gives a couple Mm. of instances where they're lynched for a petty crime right so a man stole a hog from a farm and is lynched Mm -hmm. for that um there's one instance where they're lynched for being um quote saucy to white people i don't that's the entire explanation is saucy um there's a man who was confirmed innocent like they proved he was innocent and was still lynched um after he was confirmed being innocent yes fucking ridiculous and then there's a large number where there's no reason ever found or given like there's no evidence of why it might have been done um she tells a really cool story of a man who he's accused of rape of raping a white woman and he goes to the governor for protection because in this state the governor's a little bit more open mm-hmm. um so the governor and the journalist a journalist work together to find a solid alibi so there's actually like three or four white men who can vouch for him that he was somewhere else at the time and this is a black man that's going yes. to the governor for help okay yes so he goes for protection they find him an alibi the white woman comes forward and confirms it was not him it was somebody else Right. So she says, like, I was raped by a black man, but not this black man. Okay. So he's released and he's then lynched. And the quote given is, if he didn't do it, he must have done something else. Oh, my God. So they know he's innocent, but they're like, well, he probably did something that makes it worth lynching him. I read something, too. I think that she says that if... It was similar to, like, well, if he didn't do something now, he probably would. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. She talks a bit about lynchings prior to 1894 were often not mentioned or in the news and other states and countries would not really know about them. But in the last couple of years, there's been some more awareness. Um, So there's a couple of governors who are starting to condemn it. And London and England are actually like, hey, fucking stop it. Like they mm-hmm. send some letters that are like, this is ridiculous. So there's starting to be a little bit I more. I also love, I'm like, this is probably the only humorous part of anything that we're right. talking about is like a fucking letter. Yeah. To whom it may concern. Excuse me. Stop doing this. Yes. Yeah. Like, what the fuck is a letter going to do? Like, even like today, that's like the equivalent of like a tweet. Yeah. But like, a le- but a tweet's at least public. You could publicly shame people or companies or whatever. Right. But like a letter fuck that's so funny uh, yeah. the yeah, olden but... times were fucking crazy exactly but it's at least like awareness that wasn't there before exactly yeah she and then... actually i talk about that a little bit too yeah she then she takes a little bit of a left turn and spends a chunk of this letter like working out her personal beef with this woman um, miss willard who is some sort of representative for the women's christian temperance union mm-hmm. which i had this been a the part willard of controversy right yes what um, you have been a part of? No, which Ida had been a oh part of. Oh, my God. Oh, I thought you said which you've been a part no. of. I was like, what? No, no. Ida <laughs> had been involved with them. I was like, Sarah, you also said that you're like you're like a Jewish. What was the word you used An last atheist episode? Jew. An atheist Jew. I was like, yeah, no. and why were you part of this Christian society? No, I was not. Ida was. Okay, okay. Sorry. No, you're good. That's funny. Um, but basically this lady, Miss Willard, 
had an editorial go out because that's how like all the beefs happened at this time. Mm-hmm. Um, of course. And she basically is like, Ida's racist against white people. Wah. Or whatever. <sighs> um, and is like condemning her. And Ida's like, no, I'm not having that. So she writes like this huge section of this otherwise very statistical article to be <laughs> like, let me just dismantle everything this woman just said. Like she said, yeah. I don't defend women. No, I just want black men to also be on trial, not mm-hmm. killed. Like she goes through it piece by piece. And, like, takes this little moment to just be like, fuck you, Miss Willard. Yep. Then she comes back, and so she ta- um, tabulates the numbers for 1894 as well. So she sort of goes through, you know, 197 people were lynched. Here's the breakdown of reasons, um, the breakdown of gender, of area, things like that. Mm-hmm. And she closes. This is where she says, I'm not claiming Black people have never committed a crime. I'm not saying some of these Black men didn't rape a white woman. I'm saying that they don't get the same trial and the same justice that white people would. And I literally wrote, cool how this has changed. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, literally, I I can't like that. It's like the same fucking thing. Yeah. I think of that. We're still fucking talking about this. That thing going around Facebook. Did you see where it was like a young man requested to be tried as a white man? Yes. Yeah. And so it's the same thing she's saying here. It's the same fucking thing. Right. She's like, it's not that they don't do bad things. It's that like they don't get. Yeah. And And honestly, and what angers me about myself. And again, this is I am a white woman. I am angry, but I have no right to this anger in that sense. Like I didn't learn this fucking history. Right. I didn't learn shit about Ida. I didn't like I didn't learn anything about this. No, the closest I have is like my reference is always to kill a mockingbird. Right. I'm yeah, like, oh, and that even was this that kid. is like, yes. And that's even problematic because it's yeah. the white saviorism. So exactly. it's like, fuck, like there's so much to unpack with this. And that is why, like, even though like I'll be totally candid with people listening, this was out of my comfort zone. And I was like low key freaking out about like thinking, what right do I have to talk about this right. powerhouse of a woman? Like this woman needs to be fucking talked about yeah. because she contributed so much in, in just the definition for something that is still happening yep oh sorry i'm like on a permanent soapbox no you're like. good you I gotta, should like, be step the fuck down no but, you should be yeah and so she ends this with a really practical like so people ask me what i can do about it here are five things you can do about it oh so she that's says, like those fucking instagram things that exactly. people are like now that you've shared here's what you can do this yes. is like the original what are they the cards the card yeah. websites it's like the yes. original card So she says, number one, share the facts in this book. So like a little self-promo, but a little like get the truth out there. Mm -hmm. Um, She says, get your churches or your organizations, like hint, hint, the Women's Christian Temperance Union, to condemn the practice publicly, to release statements saying that they don't support lynchings. Um, She says, use labor as a bargaining tool again. So keep in mind that like we are keeping the South afloat and you wield power that way. Mm-hmm. Um, she says think independently on the matter so don't listen to other people read about it learn about it talk to people who have been through it all of these are still relevant too yep. you could literally still do all of these things yep and then her last Except one instead is... of labor it would be like like don't buy sh- their shit exactly it's the yeah, economy yeah. still exactly okay sorry keep going no you're good and then her fifth one is to support a particular bill um she gives the number of the bill but not a ton of details But there's currently a bill that had been introduced to the Congress to form a committee to investigate these cases. So to actually have some accountability. And so she basically says, write to your representatives and ask them to support this bill. So those are her kind of five 
ways you can do something about it in the red record. I love that. Yeah, yep. this is actually this this is a great segue because I'm I'm like about to talk about her international influence because awesome. In before 1894, you're right, like most of the shit was like pretty much just stuck in America, but she tours Britain in two times, uh in 1893 and in 1894, and she discusses her anti-lynching campaign. She mm-hmm. basically expands her audience and her goal is to quote speak with reformed-minded white people, quote. And I was like, fuck, I listen yeah that is such a great phrasing for it because that's exactly what she was looking for and the people that she encountered in britain were again quote increasingly shocked by reports in america yeah like people in britain were like what the fuck is happening over there which i'm 99.999 percent positive is still happening today right and it's not like britain is over there like some beacon of equality and hope like they're like whoa whoa we didn't say you could lynch them just go take their land like correct exactly or they're like "Mm, well we're not focusing so much on like black people we're focusing more on like asian people or like people in india so like britain you're not out of this shit but like when it comes to this type of conversation you're not necessarily involved in it right if it's bad enough that they're like you did what yeah then maybe you should consider some things (laughs) yeah Seriously. Um, And then Ida also addresses a lot of issues in um, the civil rights in terms of inclusion of like black inventors and thinkers and things like that, specifically in the issue of uh, black exhibitors had been banned from participating in the 1893 World Columbian Exposition, which I literally was like, what is that? I've never fucking heard of that. It's just the World's Fair. It's the fucking World's Fair in Chicago. Yeah. I read that and I was like, why didn't they just say that? But whatever. Um, Making my life harder. And so she (laughs) pens this like really well-written pamphlet and basically tells people to boycott the event. And it's mildly successful. Um, But this endeavor was funded by Frederick Douglass and Ferdinand Barnett, who will be important later in the next like three seconds so like i said her tour her boycott of the event got significant coverage from british and american press both of them were fairly hostile personal critiques of her they used some really choice words to describe mm. her not just the fact that she was a woman but also the fact that she was a black woman mm. so a lot she of wasn't even critiques. born here right oh god fucking damn um i have so much like rage right now i'm gonna have to like go downstairs and like punch my punching bag for 10 minutes um but actually in 1894 she called out uh william penn nixon who was the owner and editor of the daily interocean newspaper who was one of the only republican papers to repeatedly denounce lynchings and he appreciated her work so much that he actually invited her to be the first african-american woman to be paid for being an international correspondent for a mainstream white media source when she was abroad in britain which i thought was pretty cool too yeah um so in 1895 uh ferdinand barnett comes back into her life because that's who she ends up marrying um so he is a widower with two sons and he was also the founder of the Chicago conservator, which I think was the first black owned newspaper in Chicago. It may have also been in the country. I couldn't figure out what they were referring to. Um, He was also fun fact, the third African-American to pass the Illinois bar exam when it was open to African-Americans to take, um, which I thought was fascinating. Uh, So Ida B. Wells Barnett, Keeps her last name, but hyphenates it, which is really badass. cool, too, because yep. she's actually one of the first women to do that. Yep. I literally wrote badass. Yep. Um, 
And the relationship between the two was described as a legal union as well as a partnership of ideas and action. They worked very closely with uh, one another, which was super uncommon for the time period. And Ferdinand accepted that she was not going to back down with her shit and she was going to keep fighting for what she wanted to get done and what she believed in. Um, And despite having four more kids, Ida continues to actually continuously pursue um, civil rights and um, obviously anti-lynching and doing investigative journalism. Um, so they have six kids in total. Ferdinand and Albert were from his original marriage. And then Charles, Herman, Ida, and Alfreda were all four of the kids that Ida and Ferdinand had together. Um, another thing I thought was actually really incredible about her was her her ability to be really candid in juggling her struggles with being a mom and being a journalist and being an activist and just being everything. Um, so in her autobiography, she has this chapter called quote, a divided duty. And the whole chapter is essentially devoted to her honesty and candor with how fucking hard it is to be a working parent and especially a working mom and trying to do all of these things at once. Yeah. Um, she, Uh, Susan B. Anthony, who is not like a super great person, by the way, she actually was like pretty trash in some ways. But no, she was like half good and then half real bad. Yeah, she was like the perfect example of a white feminist. She was like the human, the Lincoln project. (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. Your point's not wrong. I guess (laughs) 100%. That is exactly what Susan B. Anthony was. So Susan B. Anthony encountered Ida a few times. And anytime she really encountered her, she described her as seeming distracted, quote unquote, which that was like, a, I think personally, Susan B. Anthony's like mom shaming where it's like, yeah. it, it's interesting how women have always found ways to pit themselves against each other. Right. So like in Susan B. Anthony's case, Ida shouldn't be a mom. She should just be an activist or she should just be a mom and not an activist or whatever. Right. Um, but Ida did her best to travel. She brought her children with her whenever she possibly could on no, interviews. I think Susan B. Anthony should either be a racist or an activist. Right. Like, which one are you? You can't fucking be both. Um, anyway, man, I am like so angry. <laughs> so, um, yeah. I mean, Ida focuses most of her attention after settling in Chicago on raising her family and, advocating for more civil rights for african-americans she works very closely with frederick Douglass. like i said he funds a lot of her endeavors he is like fangirling her all the time with letters and he actually is asked to go on tour for a lot of his like very later years and he actually says no ida b wells would be better because she's younger she's more vibrant so he actually encourages other people to speak to have her speak instead of him um which is a huge i mean what is the word i'm looking for um endorsement like yeah. that's a huge endorsement for, right for her uh she's also a part of the women's club movement she establishes something called the women's era club which was created and intended to be a civic club for african-american women they eventually renamed this club to be i think the ida b wells era club or okay. something like that um, in 1896, she creates and helps establish the National Association of Colored Women's Clubs in Washington, D.C., which is an organization that continuously goes on to fund projects, uh, housing projects, but also just like uh, different like civil campaigns for 
people to be a part of if they are I mean, I think it's not, I don't think it's actually just African-Americans. I think it's also just women of color. Um, but they initially start out with being just for African-American women. She is also a founder of the NAACP, but her name is actually left off of the list originally for conflicting reasons, reasons. So W.E.D. Du Bois claims that she didn't want her name on there or w-e-b oh my god did i say that wrong i'll, I'll edit it out w-e-b w-e-b du bois <laughs> i'll start this over w-e-b du bois claims that she didn't want her name on there because she eventually quit the organization because she felt it was too new and there wasn't enough actual action being done yet ida claims though that she wanted to be on the list but her name was removed by du bois because people genuinely didn't actually want to work with her which is going to be sort of the last thing that I'll talk about with Ida B. Wells in that she was extremist Mm -hmm. and most organizations women um, African-American whatever like most organizations were kind of afraid of working with her because she was super intense okay yeah yeah um okay so then I did um one more primary document okay cool um, so it's written in 1900, and it is called Mob Rule in New Orleans. Robert Charles and his fight to death, the story of his life, burning humans alive, and other lynching statistics. Holy shit. Um, so this tells a specific story that happened, obviously, in New Orleans. So in July 1900, on a Monday, three white police officers are like strolling along, doing their thing. And they see two black men sitting on a doorstep talking and they decide they should be arrested for this. So they go over and arrest them. The first man whose name is something Pierce. I don't have his first name here. So the first guy Pierce, you know, acquiesces, gets handcuffed, doesn't do anything. Um, The police then try and arrest the other man, Robert Charles, and he resists arrest. So, the police pull the gun, pull out a gun in his face. He pulls out a gun. Him and a police officer shoot at each other. Um, after this sort of like duel in the street, Robert Charles escapes and Pierce is taken in into custody. So obviously all of the newspapers are defending the police, right? They're saying like this man shot oh, the police. He resisted arrest. Mm-hmm. They paint the other guy, Pierce, as having been a part of it. and involved even though he was completely compliant um and then obviously they're like charles is robert charles is terrible and ida b wells is like obviously shooting someone is bad but he likely feared lynching and that's why he's gone on the run um the news is telling all these varying stories they don't match they increasingly make it look worse and worse for the two black men so they weren't just sitting they were stealing and escalating it the police put out an order to kill Charles on site when he's found. Um, and so they have to keep in mind, he also has a wounded leg. He was shot during this little duel with the police officer. So they place dead or alive bounties on his head. And like a huge manhunt in New Orleans starts. So about four hours later, it's like 2 a.m. And they find Charles. He went back to his home to basically die there of his gunshot wound. So he mm. thought. 
Um, and so they raid his home, you know, police surround it, knock the doors down, come in, and he pulls out his gun and fires again. So he shoots two more police, killing them, including the sheriff or the deputy, one of the higher up people. Um, and so all of the other police are like, oh shit, and they run and hide because they don't want to get shot. Um, so they hide for a few hours nearby. And then they return, like, ready to go again, and find that, obviously, Robert Charles has escaped. He, he's already left his house. After this happens, there starts to be a lot of commotion in the streets. So a lot of Black people start gathering in the streets and just kind of talking about what's going on. Some of them are part of the manhunt. Some of them are just trying to figure out what happened. But they get, quote-unquote, loud, and they get arrested in large numbers. So, basically, if the police see a black man outside, they will arrest him. Um, They start taking people to prison, and there's, like, a large crowd that actually kind of parades to the prison behind them. And it's a mix of people angry about the arrests who are kind of protesting, and people who are basically running behind the cop cars shouting, or cop horse and buggies, I guess, basically shouting, like, lynch him, kill him. So... There's all sorts of commotion happening on, like, both ends of the spectrum. All sorts of shit. Meanwhile, they're still looking for Charles. Um, A fourth officer is killed. Um, So I guess someone finds him, tries to kill him on sight, and he shoots first. Mm. Um, And basically, at this point, they're like, this guy is still on the run. He's injured, which we thought would slow him down. He's obviously willing to shoot whoever comes into his path. So they start taking it out on the crowds of other black people instead of him. Um, And so there's like an undefined number of black people, women and men, who are killed violently during these mobs. And so she tells all these different stories of like an elderly black woman and young people. And they're basically just sacrificed because people are angry at this one black man who has shot a bunch of cops. This goes on for like a day. And then white people are like, oh, shit this is bad, not because they have any sort of, like, moral reckoning, but because they realize it's bad for the economy if New Orleans looks bad. Um, So they're like, okay, okay, we should cool it. So they kind of try and, like, there's some people that are trying to calm each other down, but it's still sort of like police showing up in riot gear to calm a riot, right? So the order that's involved is still corralling black people, arresting them, killing them in order to try and reduce the commotion. Mm. So this initial incident happened Monday night. We're now into Friday. So this has been going on all week. Um, On Friday, the cops do find and corner Charles. He continues shooting. So he starts shooting out of the home he's in. He I couldn't quite tell the difference. So it says he injured nine people, killed three people, and mortally wounded two. So I'm not so sure. Like, are those. Doesn't that mean you killed yeah, two other people? I'm not quite sure where those two fit in. Okay. Um, but he injured nine, killed that's three. both an injury and a mortal. Right. Wound, and, like, and, a, and a murder. You didn't kill the third person without mortally wounding them. Right. right. So you I'm not... mortally wounded the three people you killed. Sorry. Right. It's not funny, it's but it's not, like, but what the fuck? I'm not quite sure where those two fit in, but he's right, obviously like rampage shooting at this point. Yeah. Anyone that comes near yeah. him, he is just shooting. So they set fire to the house that he's in to try and lure him out. He keeps shooting through the fire. Um, And eventually does come out through the front door with his gun up, ready to shoot. 
and he's riddled with like a hundred bullets at one time. Mm. Um, and he's killed. Which this piece, like, it's not that surprising anyone shooting at police officers like that right. would be shot, but it's just escalated and escalated over the course of this. Week. I mean, this whole situation was a huge like escalation. It, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And so she's never like, I mean, yeah, it's fine that he shot all these people. It's just right. like, think about why. But obviously, this turns into a story about deranged, that's a quote, deranged, angry black people who, like, led mm. mobs throughout the city, causing all this death and destruction, which doesn't sound at all familiar. Oh, my God. The narratives. It's just so incredible, these fucking narratives. Yeah. And so she tells the story, you know, she's saying these are people deliberately finding a black person to kill in a symbolic sacrifice. Yep. Afterwards. And they start trying to smear Robert Charles to an even further extent. Because for the most part in the media, if you say he killed, I think, five police officers, ultimately, that's some level of truth that people will dislike him for. But they start trying to find history of, like, crimes and issues. Desperado is the word they keep using. And they're saying that not only was he this, but so was Pierce, the guy who was with him, who went quietly. Yeah. Um, So they basically make up all this stuff. They claim he was part of another crime that involved four black men who were lynched like in earlier years. They search his home and they find a lot of like quote unquote radical literature about Negro emancipation to Liberia is what they call it. And okay. so he's he's very like active in anti-racism and he's he has pamphlets that are somewhat whatever they at the time would consider anti-white Right. Like, okay. so they find this radical literature that they're saying is the cause of this. They also find a number of religious texts. Um, the quote I have from Ida about this here is, so he lived and so he would have died had he not raised his hand to resent unprovoked assault and unlawful arrest that fateful Monday night. That made him an outlaw. And being a man of courage, he decided to die with his face to the foe. The white people of this country may charge that he was a desperado, but to the people of his own race, Robert Charles will always be regarded as the hero of New Orleans. Wow. That doesn't necessarily go over so well. because People are like, you still yeah. shouldn't shoot a cop, I guess. I don't know. I think he can do what he wants. But yeah. Um, but so she's very much like lifting this guy up. Um, and she calls him. Yeah. Well, hero. she's like making it clear that it's like if you under if you actually stepped back and took a second to understand why the fuck he acted the way that he did you would actually see that this was not like a shocking isolated incident in that sense have to happen it was because these police came and waved a gun in his face and then like yeah maybe he reacted very strongly but that was the cause of this Mm -hmm. not him yeah he had not left the house that day looking to hurt somebody oh my god what year was this 1900? Okay. Um, So she again posts, she posts here a detailed list of lynchings that year, or by year, in numbers, right? So again, gender breakdowns, race breakdowns, crime breakdowns. And so she lists for that year, there was 269 people lynched for rape, 253 for murder, it goes down, some with um, robbery, burglary, 27 for Race prejudice. What? I, I'm clear. 13 quarreled with white men. 10 made oh threats. 
five with miscegenation, which is a term for consensual um, sexual activity with someone of another race. And in 32 cases, no reasons were given. The victims were lynched on general principle. And then I have one final mic drop here from her. And this is a point she repeats throughout all of these different ones. But I feel like it was succinct here. Yeah. When the white women and children of the South had no protector, save only these Negroes, not one instance is known where the trust was betrayed. It's remarkably strange that the Negro had more respect for womanhood with the white men of the South hundreds of miles away than they have today when surrounded by those who take their lives with impunity and burn in torture. So again, this is wow. during so the Civil War. about the Civil War when the fucking yes. Union soldiers were like They're coming gone. in and taking over homes and shit. And like how literally how black enslaved men fucking stood up and protected the white women and children who were being threatened by the Union. Yes. And just like it doesn't make sense. You were in a time when the like man of the house or whatever was gone at war. Right. And so the women and children were left home with their enslaved people, the enslaved mm-hmm. people that lived with them. Mm-hmm. And those people did not rape them when the men were hundreds of miles away and they had no protection. So women were like extremely vulnerable at that time. Right. And yeah. there's, she says, no, maybe very few cases where that happens. Right. No one's accused right. of that. But now the white men are back. They're armed. They're angry. You know that they will lynch you. And all of a sudden, all the black men are like, hey, what if we raped all the women? That doesn't make sense. So she's just arguing that has to be some sort of construction post-Civil War that has allowed that to happen. And so that is my, my last mic drop from her. Um, But she does not hold back in any of these pieces. I mean, she says stuff that, like you said, is is fairly extremist and gets her a lot of hate. But yeah, she's and there's gonna even some discomfort from members of the black community too. I think a lot of them yeah. um, who were leaders were uh, not necessarily afraid of her. It was more along the lines of like, can, can her extremist beliefs really help our movement? Right. And it that's was- actually where most of her, like the last like 20 to 30 years of her life are spent in kind of like wandering around trying to find the organization where she could be that person yeah i mean it's the same thing that happens today right there are people who don't want to be associated with black lives matter or different elements of like quote-unquote looting or whatever because they say it gives us a bad name and then white people take us less seriously that's like an argument that i feel like i i see go on today i obviously can't speak to it as i'm not a member of the black community but i feel like that's something i see come up is and even when you go outside of this issue just to like the democratic party or something right people are like or even like aoc feminist bad name yeah yeah like you know like all all women who want equal rights for women are like fucking bra burning whatever right Right. (laughs) it's like we have to toe the line Right, like, we're going to slit the throats of the patriarchy and drink their blood. Like, that's not on my agenda. I just want people to fucking be paid equally and for you to not control our bodies. Like, that's kind of it. Yeah, Yeah. so it's the same type of fight just here. It's happening within the black community. And that actually could be why we don't hear too much necessarily about her. Because she did have a lot of... She had so many different roles. And, 
I think a lot of people didn't realize her influence until after she had died, which is kind of almost how, you know, we're like almost there. But so she, something I thought was kind of cool about her too is in 1900 as well. She also uh, protested pretty vehemently against the Chicago Tribune who had suggested that segregated schooling was better. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so she cited her many years of experience as an educator and she lobbied the editor and created this like huge pressure group with Jane Addams, who was also a really big advocate for women's rights and education. Um, she and Jane worked together and they actually ended up stopping the idea of Chicago segregating their schools. And that was pretty much what she continued to do for the rest of her life in terms of just finding people who were equally as strong and motivated as her and like banding together with them um in world war during world war one actually i thought this was kind of cool the u.s government determined wells was a dangerous race agitator who needed to be under constant surveillance Oh, okay. because they felt that she was going to pull some shit where she was like going to start like a quote-unquote race war during world war one when america was like not able to fight back at it Mm -hmm. um she also did a lot of investigative reporting on the race riots um, for St. Louis. Um, in the 1920s, she worked and fought for African-American workers' rights. Uh, she also, I think, met with Wilson, Woodrow Wilson, mm-hmm. and tried to get him to like agree to uh, denouncing lynching and offering more opportunities for African-Americans to get education and to have like equal pay in the uh, workforce. Um, in 1928, she was a delegate to the Republican National Convention, but she actually lost that delicacy, a delicacy, <laughs> delegate. I don't know how to say that. Delegateness. Delegateness. So she, in 1928, she lost the delegateness. Delegation? Um, because it, delegation. That, yeah. She was no longer the delegate. Fucking yep. damn. That took me way too long <laughs> to figure out. Um, and two years later, she actually ran, uh, for the independent, she ran as an independent, for the seat in the Illinois State Senate against a man named Adelbert Roberts. I don't know if he was white or black. I'm going to guess he was white. Yeah. But I might be wrong. I might just be making a really general assumption. Um, But the other big thing, too, kind of just kind of capping this off is Ida Wells thought that all races and genders should be accountable for their actions. And I think you kind of brought this up quite a bit in Mm -hmm. how she approached things like when crimes were committed by black men. And she said, you know, it's not about the crimes being committed. It's about the fact that you can have an identical crime being committed and the way that a white man is going to be treated for it versus the way a black man is going to be treated for it. That's the problem. Yeah. Crimes are going to happen regardless, but like she was a big advocate for also having women be more in control of themselves. You know, she also took it upon herself to make sure that women, you know, African-American women, white women, whoever were like knew what their value was and knew what they needed to do in order to actually be a part of the conversation. Um, So in 1928, she started writing an autobiography, but she died before it actually could be completed. And her daughter, Alfreda, actually finished the 
article or sorry, the book for her. And that was published, I think, in 1970. And so uh, Ida B. Wells dies of kidney failure at the age of 68 years old on March 25th, 1931. And it's not really until about like 40 years later when her daughter publishes her autobiography that her influence is really like known throughout. So mm-hmm. you could pretty much look at any like major journalistic scholarship school program whatever and there's some type of award or scholarship for ida b wells um i think there's an award established for her with the national association of black journalists uh the metal school of journalism at northwestern university there's a memorial foundation and a museum there's a a museum in her hometown of holly springs and in 1988, she was inducted into the National Women's Hall of Fame and the Chicago Women's Hall of Fame, which both of those places sound fucking awesome. Yeah. And I didn't even really know we had one of those things. So I'm definitely going to check that out once the world, well, once the country reopens. Yeah. Um, in February 1st, on February 1st, 1990, the USPS uh, had a 25 cent stamp made for her. Uh, Google Doodle was there on her birthday on July 16th in 2015. And most recently, on May 4th, 2020, uh, she was awarded the posthumous Pulitzer Prize. Aww. And I thought that date was also really beautiful because that was the date that she was taken off of the train. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. I don't know if they did that deliberately or if that was just like a good timing kind of thing. Yeah. But- I thought that was really, really powerful. That's and cool. yeah, I mean, that is Ida B. Wells, fucking one of our most badass w- women, probably that we'll talk about. Yeah. So, woo. Yay. Cool. All right. Another one down, folks. Thank you for listening to our, uh, I would call it rambling, but I would also say, I, I mean, for me, I'm speaking for myself, I'm trying to figure this out. Yep. And I'm trying to be more accountable for the information that I take in. And, you know, I'm I hope that you stuck with us this whole time because I feel like we talked about some heavy and important shit and maybe you didn't laugh as much as you have the last episodes, but this is all too relevant still. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of it felt like it could have been written today if you swapped a couple of terms out. Even the names, even the fact that she has a fucking list of names of people who were lynched. That, like, actually sends chills down my body. Like, yep. so, you know, we got to just keep educating ourselves. And we also have to just keep accepting that we don't know everything. And I probably fucked up a bunch of times in this episode. But Same. you know what? I'm probably not going to edit those out either because I think I need to learn and I need to be held accountable for what I don't know. Yep. Same here. So, so if you have comments, questions, concerns, anything to criticize, seriously, please, please, please reach out. Uh, podcast at gmail.com. We are here waiting to, you know, be schooled in this because that's the only way we're going to get shit done. So, all right. On that note, thank you for listening. Goodbye. Thanks, guys. Thank you for listening to What the History Podcast. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at WTHistoryPod. You're also welcome to email us at whatthehistorypodcast at gmail.com with topic suggestions or questions. Please subscribe to the podcast so that upcoming episodes show up in your feed and we will talk to you soon.